This is the Monroeville Christian Church podcast, where you can find sermons, Bible studies, and other biblical content produced by Monroeville Christian Church. My name is Covey Wise. I'm one of the preachers at Monroeville Christian Church. We're committed to teaching, training, and transforming lives for Christ, and we invite you to grow with us. Good morning. Good to see everyone again. Uh, It's exciting to see all the things that are going on in the congregation. Um, Many of you know uh, we had a new co-op group start this this last week and went very well. Uh, Been a lot of work done and we're appreciative of everybody involved in that effort and all the things that have been part of that. Uh, We have a a growing marriage ministry. The ladies and men's ministries are active. There's a lot going on for youth and families. We have a revival coming up next week. Make sure to be a part of that. Uh, Dean Jackson coming in. Um, It's a a wonderful blessing to be a part of a servant-minded and healthy church family. And just wanted to thank you all for everything that you're doing, especially recently. Uh, I may have noticed some changes out in the lobby. Uh, we're trying out some different things there, um, just doing our best to, to make room for people that are gathering in there. And uh, we have more people staying afterward and wanting to, to have conversation, which is a good thing. And uh, that way information is all in the same spot as well. This morning we are going to conclude our series on miracles. In this series we've studied the seven great wonders found in the book of John before Christ's death and burial. And all of these great signs point to and prove that Jesus is the Son of God. And in fact, each week I read what John wrote from John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, that says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book, but these, the ones that John gives us, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And today we're going to finish our miracle series with the wonder of all wonders, the greatest of all the miracles, Christ's resurrection. This miracle is recorded in all four gospel accounts with a focus slightly different in each one. And some may ask, was this a miracle of Jesus? To answer that question, we must first ask, who crucified Jesus? Who was it that crucified Christ? God did, but did the Romans crucify Christ? Yes, for the Roman soldiers and for the Roman officials, they were doing their job. They were doing their duty. But were they completely to blame? No. Did the Jews crucify Christ? Yes, the Jews had a part. They demanded for him to be crucified. It was because of their charges that Jesus was put to trial. They were the ones who traded a known criminal for Christ. Did we crucify Jesus? Did you and I? Yes, we did. Because of our sin, 
he had to die as the only acceptable atoning sacrifice for the sin of mankind. But ultimately, who crucified Jesus? Someone mentioned before God. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 said, He, meaning God, made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. But even then, ultimately, who was given the authority that Jesus would die for the sins of the world? And who was ultimately in charge of his life? Jesus. Which is why this is a miracle of Christ, that he rose from the dead. In John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, Christ himself says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it back. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it back. This commandment I received from my Father. So Jesus ultimately had authority to lay down his life. The Father had given him that authority. It was his choice to go to the cross. It was his choice to die the death of criminals. It was his choice to suffer the pain and agony for you and for me. And he chose to lay down his life. He chose the time and the place. He chose the perfect fulfillment of all the prophecies that would prove that he is the Messiah, the very Son of God. And this is why Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8 says this. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, or other translations say something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing. He decided to leave the throne room of heaven, to come to to the earth. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So without a doubt, Jesus died. By this time in history, the Romans were experts at crucifixion. Lewis Foster says crucifixion was the most shameful of deaths. It was a symbol of the severest torture, the ultimate horror that you could experience. The Romans even had a law that no Roman citizen could be crucified, regardless of how heinous the crime was. This end was even too shameful for the worst of Roman citizens to endure. But Jesus, the Son of God, died that way for you and for me. In John chapter 19, we find the events recorded leading up to the cross and the crucifixion. In verses 1 through 16, we learn about the the scourging, which usually accompanied the crucifixion. And many people died from that alone. Pilate was hoping that by this beating, he would satisfy the Jews, that he could present Christ back to them and say, See what I did? Isn't this okay? Can I release him now? He's an innocent man. I find no fault in him, but that wasn't enough. 
In addition to this, the soldiers handling the proceedings mocked Jesus, putting a purple robe on him and smashing a crown of thorns onto his head. And he was led out before the people who were yelling, Crucify him! Crucify him! Shameful, and more than likely naked, because that's how they would crucify men. He had to bear the burden of his own cross. Because the executions and burials took place outside the walls of the city. And in verses 18 through 27, chapter 19, it's interesting that none of the gospel writings go into the specifics about how Jesus was nailed to the cross. John doesn't either. The gruesome details of what he looked like, specifics of what they did. The Lord evidently did not want us to dwell on this. But we do know from historical writings, the typical practices related to crucifixion, and every single thing that they did was used to make it the longest, most torturous, agonizing death it could possibly be. Verses 31 through 37 of John 19, John makes specific mention that Christ's legs were not broken like most criminals were. This happened to fulfill prophecy. And John also gives us a medical reference to the fact that Jesus' heart was pierced. That he was without a doubt physically dead. When he says one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Knowing all this, Jesus died for you and for me. He prophesied it about it himself. He had the authority to lay down his life given to him by the Father. And he did it as the perfect sinless sacrifice for you and for me. John 10, 17 and 18 again says, Christ says, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it back. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it back. This commandment I received from my Father. Jesus prophesied about his death about his burial, his resurrection. He even told his disciples again and again that he would die, that he would rise again. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31, it says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And in Luke chapter 18, verse 31 through 30, 33, Jesus took the twelve aside and he told them, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him, and they will flog him and kill him, and on the third day, he will rise again. The Jesus clearly communicated to them that he would decide the time, that he would decide the place, 
that he would decide how and he would decide when his life would be given back. Jesus was in control through every dangerous situation that he was in. Even leading up to his arrest, his trial, and the crucifixion, there were multiple times, if we read through the gospel accounts, that he, he could have been arrested or very easily killed, and he slips through the crowd. And he's no longer there. Because it wasn't time for him to be arrested, to be killed. This is particularly noticeable in the very last hours leading up to his arrest. Remember in the garden as they came to arrest him, the soldiers and officials, they drew back and they fell on the ground when he said, I am he. They couldn't help but understand that he was the Son of God. Christ demanded that the guards allow the apostles to go when he was arrested. And they do so willingly. He did not want to fight to prove who he said he was. It was his choice to be arrested. And he even puts Malchus's ear back on, showing mercy and submitting to his arrest and trial. As we know, he could have called legions of angels to rescue him if he wanted to, but he didn't. And even before Pilate on trial, Jesus reminded him of his place. In John 19, verse 11, he said, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Christ was in control in his entire ministry, in his time leading up to his death, burial, and resurrection, and his arrest, through the trials, through the scourging, through the carrying of his cross, to the very crucifixion of itself, because he had the authority to lay down his life and the very authority to take it up again. And just as we ask the question, who crucified Christ, we can also review scriptures, help us understand who raised Jesus up from the dead. If you turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 24, Acts 2, verse 24, tells us there that God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So God had a part in raising Christ from the dead. Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. It explains there both who raised Jesus from the dead and how we rise up with him in Christian baptism. When it says, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, we understand that the same power that raised Christ from the dead will one day raise us who are in Christ on the last day. When Paul writes, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. And so who raised Jesus from the dead? He had the authority to take it back up again. 
God the Father, we're told in Scripture, raised him from the dead, according to Romans chapter 8, who raised him from the dead. The Spirit. And so all three were involved. It's interesting to see the Trinity, the, whole, the Godhead, as we would refer to it, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, is involved when Jesus came to the earth, aren't they? The Spirit hovered over Mary. Jesus humbled himself and came. God the Father sent him. He gave his only begotten Son. They're all involved throughout the life and ministry of Christ. And they're all involved at the resurrection, rising him up from the dead. And they will all be involved when he returns again. God the Father will send the Son. And the Son will come to claim his bride. And he will recognize those who are in him because of the mark, the seal of promise, the Holy Spirit indwelling inside of them. George Fall says this about the involvement of the Trinity in the resurrection. Who but Jesus ever claimed that he had the right, the power, and authority to lay down their life and take it up again? God the Father gave him the command. God gave him that right. This is what makes Jesus' death a sacrifice. He gave it himself. No one took it from him. God gave him the command to have authority over his death and resurrection. His life was his own. Neither Satan, the world, nor even God the Father controlled what he did. And when he died, his own free choice determined if and when it would happen. The wages of sin are death, but he had no sin. He did not need or deserve to die, and this is why he could redeem us. The Father willed it, the Son chose to do it. And the same Spirit who raised him to life again will raise us to life one day. Galatians chapter 5 verse 16 says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so if this very Spirit, this same Holy Spirit, that was involved in the power to bring Christ back from the dead, is going to be the same power that raises us from the dead again. How should we live? What kind of lives should we live? What should be our faith and practice? Well, that's why Paul says things like this in Galatians. That we need to walk by the Spirit, to not gratify the desires of the flesh. If the gospel writers would have ended with the crucifixion of Jesus, there would have been no hope. There would have been no gospel, no good news. If John would have stopped in John 19, there would be no good news. Christ in the grave was not good news. Had he remained in the grave, there could have been no Christianity. And this is why Paul declared absolutely everything. And over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, everything that is wrapped up in Christianity hinges on the fact of the resurrection. If the resurrection did not occur, the preaching of the apostles is in vain. The faith of 
Christ, the faith in Christ that we have is in vain. They are fake witnesses. All men are still in their sins, and the dead in Christ have perished and have no hope. In John's account of the resurrection, like the other wonders John's describing for us in his gospel, it is written that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And in his account from John chapter 20, verse 1 through 18, we'll observe a new hope, a new life, and a new message. Let's read John chapter 20, verses 1 through 9. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. And so Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. And then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So for the first time ever, Sunday, the first day of the week, becomes the prominent day for God's people to worship Him. We talked about this a little bit in our Sunday school class this morning, why we no longer worship on the Sabbath. Because we have a new covenant, a new day to worship the Lord. The culmination of God's redeeming plan, the crowning moment over victory of sin and death, began on the first day of the week. And this is why the early church met on the first day of the week. This is why we continue to meet on the first day of the week to remember Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. John follows the account of Mary Magdalene. This was the Mary whom he cast out seven demons from. And why does John follow her account and not the testimony of the other gospel writers? What about Mary? Why, why follow her? We're not told for sure, but one possibility is that John wants to highlight Jesus' life and his teaching. That is for everyone, even for those who might be despised. Mary had come from an extreme background, and if Christ could give her a new hope, give her new life, new purpose, he can change anyone. She had become a devout follower of Christ. She was one of the few at the foot of the cross. And she's now going back to the tomb. She went there to see that he was buried according to their customs and their traditions. Bringing the embalming oils and the spices that were needed to prepare the body. She had no plan of going there to see the resurrected Lord. She was expecting to find his lifeless body still in the tomb, wrapped in the grave clothes. And even after she saw the empty tomb... It doesn't hit her that he's risen from the dead. She thinks they've stolen the body. Somebody's taken it. They've laid it somewhere else. And she goes back to warn Peter and John. And they run to the tomb. 
And we're told after they looked in, they saw the linen wrappings and the, uh, the head cloth lying there folded neatly. But they believed. There was something about how the tomb was left that caused them to be amazed. Without a doubt, Peter and John were convinced the Lord was alive and their hope was renewed. But Mary wasn't yet convinced. Verses 10 through 18 tell us the disciples went back to where they were staying. And now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been. One at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. And at this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. For the disciples, the resurrection miracle was the ultimate confirmation that Jesus was who He said He was. Notice they don't begin searching for the body, Peter and John. They didn't cry out in despair. They knew that what He said was true. They knew He was alive. They go back home. They go to the others and tell them. This miracle changed their lives. Mary, she stays here weeping. She's not immediately convinced. And the Lord sends two angels to reveal this message to her. And they ask her, why are you crying? And she tells them this answer. They've taken the Lord away. I don't know where they put him. They leave and Christ appears and he asks her the same question. Woman, why are you crying? This question is significant for us today, as it was for Mary and the others who wept for Jesus. With his resurrection, he guaranteed the victory over sin and death. With his resurrection, Satan's head had been crushed. With his resurrection, he proved that he is the resurrection and the life, that he alone has the authority to guarantee life eternal. Even in our deepest moments of despair we can find the truth that He is risen. We can place our faith, our hope, and our trust in that fact that we have a new hope, a new life in Christ. And Jesus asks her, Who is it that you're looking for, Mary? And those who answer this question with the response, My Lord, as Mary did, are sure to find Him. Who is it that you're looking for? Is it yourself? Is it your personal desires? The pleasures and pursuits of this world? 
Were you looking for the Savior? Acts 17, 27, Paul says, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. See, the resurrection made it possible for anyone to have new life in him. But we have to know who we're looking for. It gave the apostles a new message as well. The death of Christ meant many things to many people. To the Roman soldiers, it was just doing their job. To the Roman officials, they were just trying to keep the peace. To the Jews, they thought they had removed this menace of teaching that was causing them all kinds of trouble and threatening their way of life. For Judas, his guilt led him to commit suicide. And in the same way, the resurrection of Christ meant many different things to many different people. For the soldiers who guarded the tomb, it meant the death penalty for losing the body. To the Pharisees who refused to admit the resurrection, they had to come up with a lie, a baseless claim that the body had been stolen. And for the disciples, the resurrection meant new hope, new life and a new message to boldly proclaim. The disciples, for them, the resurrection was a bright and shining star in a world of darkness. And we're told throughout the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 4, verses 18 through 20, it says, They called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. The resurrection changed everything for them. In Acts chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, we gave you strict orders not to teach in His name. And He said, Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. And in Acts 17, verse 6, while, while being persecuted in Thessalonica, the mob shouted at them, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Man, wouldn't it be amazing if Monroeville, Pittsburgh, when people, when the city looks at Monroeville Christian Church, they say, those people have turned the world upside down for Jesus. That's what the resurrection means for the church. It gives us new hope, new life, new purpose that's only found in Christ. The disciples were commissioned with preaching the gospel wherever they went, and they did. And they did so boldly and confidently, knowing that they were serving not a dead Savior, not someone who remained in the tomb, but the risen Lord, King of kings, Lord of lords. And we need to heed the words that He spoke to them when He said, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you.
Jesus is sending you, church, individually, to your friends, to your neighbors, to your co-workers, to everyone in your life that needs to hear the saving message of Christ, that gospel message. The resurrection changed everything. It proved, without a doubt, that Christ was the Messiah. What will be your reaction? Will we be like the Jewish leaders? Deny it never happened? Make up excuses? Or will you see the overwhelming evidence? Consider the eyewitness testimony of those who saw the risen Lord. Will you put your faith in the one who can save you from your sins and give you the gift of eternal life? As the guys come forward to sing our invitation song, we're going to offer as we do each Lord's Day. An opportunity for you to respond. If you believe in Jesus Christ, that He is the Son of God. You're willing to place your faith and trust and confidence in Him and confess Him before others, telling them about this wonderful saving message about the risen Lord. And you're willing to repent of your sin, start living for God and to be immersed in Christ immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're going to give you that chance today as we stand and sing.